morning, y'all. Good morning, UBC Wicker Park. I've never said that before. Uh, my name is Brittany. I'm the pastor uh, here today. Uh, I spend most of my time in Andersonville, where I, I'm on staff of all of UBC. I spend most of my time in Andersonville at that site, and it's just a great joy and honor to be in this place today. I've never been here. Uh, this is the place of legend and dreams. And, <laughs> and it's way cooler than the retirement center that I hang out in uh, most, most of the time. Cooler, literally, the temperature. My, my place is usually 85 degrees. So, and just in style. Friends, I have been thinking about you and praying for you a lot in these weeks as you have said goodbye to your pastor, Trey. I feel, I feel a special connection with you because I have experienced that loss too. Um, it was about seven years ago at this time. I was serving as the chair of the Staff Parish Relations Committee, which is um, Brian Straw. Many of you know him. He serves as the chair in that capacity for all of UBC. I was serving as a chair at the Holy Covenant United Methodist Church in um, Lakeview, and my pastor, Trey Hall, at the time, called me, and he said, I'm moving. I'm going to a new church. And I said, what church? And he said, well, it doesn't exist yet. I'm going to start it. And I, I, I think I might have told him he was crazy, um, because the church that he was in was really awesome. And I couldn't imagine why he would leave. Um, but he did. And um, thanks be to God for the vision that was placed on Christian Kuhn and Trey Hall's uh, heart. And that has been lived out in, in this site and in the other three sites across the city. Um, and I was left in that church and I survived. And I thrived. And good things and blessings came even though um, we had lost a very dear pastor. So, no, um, I am praying for you all in this transition and um, am excited about the future that's going to come um, over these next couple of months. And maybe I should say, if you're a first-time guest, um, talk to me afterwards and I'll explain everything that's happening. We have the pastor that founded um, UBC has moved to the United Kingdom, and so um, this... This church is going strong and um, going to have a great, a great, as Jeremiah promises, a great future with hope. Uh, so let us begin this time in prayer. <sighs> Holy and gracious God, for the gift of life in our lungs that reminds us of our identity as your beloved children, for the gift of scripture that we can play in and dwell in that reinforces our identity as your people. We give you thanks. Open our ears today. Open my mouth today. Open our hearts. Change our lives that they might all be for your glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus who shows us a new gospel way, a new way of love. So about six and a half years ago, um, I can remember sitting in the back of a house at the Starbucks on Michigan Avenue, 444 North Michigan Avenue, right across from the Tribune Towers. Has anybody been in that Starbucks before? One person, five people? <laughs> um, 
At that time, I had been managing that store for about two years. And uh, I, I want to I say that that store, if, if you've been in it, you, you might understand this, it's sort of the store of legends. Like the, at the time, I don't know what it is now, but it was the busiest store in the Midwest. We would see like three to 500 customers in a two hour period. Um, so the tons of morning commuters, you can just imagine buzzing in and out. Afternoon was full of tourists who didn't know what a venti or a grande or a, any of that was. Um, and it was, it was just a chaotic store. I uh, would, you know, be at Starbucks events and, and people would, you know, we, we'd exchange information. What store are you at? What store are you at? And, and when I would say I'm at 444 North Michigan, they would usually say something like, oh. And it was sort of a awe, like, wow, that's really cool, and sort of a horror, like, wow, how do you live your life? Because this is overwhelming. Or like, oh, I picked up a ship there once. Never again. Um, so that, that was this store. I remember when, so I've been there about two years. I remember when I was received a phone call from my district manager, my DM, and he asked if I would take that store. I remember being thrilled and excited. Thrilled like, wow, really? You think I can handle that store? Um, and excited because I was going to get a pay increase. And um, let's be real, right? And uh, also sort of honored like, yeah, I guess I'm a badass if I can handle this, right? Can I say that here? I'm sorry. For um, being real. So I began my tenure there with a lot of fear and hope and, and excitement. Fear because I didn't want to mess it all up. This was about in 2007 or so. So about six months after I took over the store, the stock market just, right? And um, sales plummeted and there were, there were a couple of, of months there where I was losing $10,000, $20,000 at the end of the month because everything was so awful. And I thought, Why, what am I doing? Am I going to be able to handle this? Am I, am I worthy of this? Work sucked. Uh, but I pressed on, and I, um, you know, Starbucks made changes. I made changes in, in my leadership style. I continued to develop um, the baristas and shift supervisors and assistant store managers and press into people, and things started to slowly turn around, right? Things became better. After two years of this, I got to a point, though, where I was falling out of love with Starbucks. One of, and I know that sounds weird, we'll talk about that in a minute, but one of the things that Starbucks did is they, they became more profit-focused. And I know that sounds weird because you would think that a company was very profit-focused, but I was promoted to store manager. I remember sitting in my first store with my district manager and saying, I have no idea how to read a profit and loss statement. Can you walk me through that. Doesn't that seem weird for a store manager not to know how to run a business? Yeah. Um, so things changed for good, like for good, right? But I came to realize that my job was to get the highest amount of sales possible so that the end of the month we could report a profit so that at the end of the quarter our shareholders meeting we could report a high profit so that then we would have a higher stock price so that then all of our shareholders would be happy, right? 
And I started to feel like there was no purpose in this job, that it wasn't making me happy. So about six and a half years ago, I was sitting in the back room of my Starbucks, and my district manager could tell I was in a slump, could tell I had sort of plateaued, and he was trying to motivate me and inspire me. And he said, Brittany, what do you want to be when you retire? What do you want to be doing? And I was like, um, I don't know. Now, just to add some color to this situation, Starbucks had become an accidental career for me. I went to seminary convinced that I would be a pastor. I came out in the process of seminary and came to the realization soon that because of the brokenness of the church, um, that there probably wasn't going to be a place for me. And so out of seminary, I thought, well, I need a job, and it would sure be great to have health insurance. So I applied to Starbucks, and I started as a barista, and I thought the company was great, and I just sort of worked my way up. So five years into this thing, I'm thinking, now what? Is this, is this life? Is this what it's about? Is this all there is? You know that feeling? I don't know. I, I remember during that time, there were many times I would sit in the shower, washing my hair, just letting the water run over and think, wow, this is life, huh? This is all there is to it. It was very uninspiring. So when I said, I don't know, my district manager tried a different approach with me. He got out a piece of paper and he wrote down a line and he put store manager and then he put some other lines down the paper and he pointed to the one right next to store manager and he's like, Brittany, what do you want your next job to be? What do you want your next job to be? This store um, it was the training ground for district managers. The two store managers prior to me had been promoted to district manager. So it was very obvious what I was supposed to say. So I said, um, I want my next job to be a district manager, I guess. He heard my enthusiasm and he said, he said, Brittany, no, this isn't about like this isn't about like me helping you be something at Starbucks or not. I don't care about that. I care about you. What are you passionate about? What do you dream about? What do you want in your life? If you could be anything in the world, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd be a pastor. That's so easy, but that's never going to happen. So. And I knew he couldn't help me make that happen, right? But he said, you know what? Maybe you'll never be a pastor. But maybe one day you will. And what are you doing right now in this moment that is preparing you for that? How are you using this job so that nothing is lost, right? He, um, he actually was a person of faith. How are you not wasting this place for what you long to do? That conversation was a life rope for me. It allowed me to stay in that job for another two and a half years. There were really sucky parts of it. Um, it was hard, but to be reminded that nothing would be lost, that, that I could be in that job and, and not be doing what I desired, but, but that God was still using that, that was really powerful. That conversation also allowed me to realize that um, 
my frustration was not with the company of Starbucks, it was with my own sense of vocation and what I was longing for. That word vocation, Katie brought up last week in her sermon. If you didn't listen to it on the podcast, I highly recommend it. I had to brush up. I had to know what y'all had been talking about. (laughs) She, in that sermon, brought up one of my favorite quotes, a quote that I have found solace in and that I I feel like is full of purpose and passion. It's by a, a theologian named Frederick Buechner. And he says, I always mess this up, so I want to make sure I get it right. He says, the place God calls you to be is where your deep gladness and the world's greatest hunger meet. The place God calls you to be is where your deep gladness and the world's greatest hunger meet. I used to think that was about trying to find the perfect job. But I've come to realize, I've become increasingly aware that that is a myth. Not everyone has the option to wait around for a perfect job. Some of us need to earn a living now because we have to put, we have to pay our rent and put food on the table, right? We don't have the option to wait around for this perfect job. We have to work now. And I actually don't think that that was ever what Beekner was talking about. He wasn't talking about our job. He was talking about our sense of vocation, our identity as a child of God as being made in the image of God. So now this is back to Rich's sermon a couple of weeks ago, right? That we are made in the image of God, invited to create and be in this world. That's what Buechner's talking about. The place that God calls you. It can be in a variety of places. It can be your job. It can be your family life. It's probably all of it if we're trying to integrate everything. Yet somehow in the last 20 to 30 years, we have created this myth that there is a perfect job out there and we deserve it. This is going to be, this this mythical job, it's going to be a job that we love. It's going to be a job that the world needs. It's going to be a job that we, uh, I forgot all of the ones because it's so not true, right? I'm trying to discount it. It's going to be a job that um, we can be paid for in a job that we're good at, right? So if we can just find the right job and maybe land it by the time we're 24, 25, (laughs) perfect, right? But that is the lie and the myth that we have been told. I uh, started a discernment small group last fall and uh, we talked about a lot of this stuff about vocation and about Um, our job and about like how to live in all of that and one week I introduced this diagram I'm going to take give you a minute to look at it this diagram represents that myth and that lie that that there is a job out there that we love that the world needs that you can be paid for and that you're good at and it it shows how small the possibility is that you will achieve all of that right so if, if every job out there in this world fell onto this Venn diagram, do you see how small the possibility is that you can get all four of this? Just out of curiosity, is anybody working in a job that meets all four of those? Is anybody working where three of them? Maybe three? Two? And then, of course, I want to mention those who are longing for work. Those who 
are working every day to try to find a job that they can be paid for, paid fully for, too. Uh, just out of curiosity, because it's my favorite section, how many of you are working in a job that you love, that you're good at, and you can be paid for, but the world does not need it? <laughs> Hello, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I'm so not cool, though. I don't even, I've never even seen that show, but I can pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this Venn diagram catapulted our discussion. Can you see it? Can you see how this myth we need to just let lie and say it's a myth? This narrative that we have constructed in our society, uh, that work has to be full of passion and purpose and meaning, um, it's just not true. I remember in this, in this discernment small group, one of the women in it said, you know what, I'm in a job that I'm good at and I'm getting paid for and the world needs, but I do not love it and I do not have the luxury to change right now because I have a family and they're counting on me. And so I'm in this job. So the question then becomes, how do we live in that, live in that tension? And I want to say the good news, the gospel truth is, that we can let this myth, like we can cast it aside. We can call it a lie. Because when I was reflecting on the scripture passage for today, I realized that even the disciples, followers of Jesus, did not fit into this, nor Jesus, actually. So um, I, I want to back up. The scripture passage that we read today refers to uh, the disciples pulling grain from the field, right? And that is a law that we find in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus 23-22 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Jesus and his followers were poor. They weren't being paid for their work. They had to take the gleanings from the field. So, their work, this life-changing ministry that the world needed, that I'm not sure if they were good at it. It's a mixed bag with those disciples. <laughs> sometimes they were good at their work and sometimes they weren't. Maybe the same is true for the love. This life-changing work was not, they weren't being paid for. They had to eat from the gleanings of the field. So take rest, friends that even the disciples, even Jesus himself, did not fit into that little star shape on this Venn diagram. That's kind of good news, right? Kind of? Maybe not. The law of Leviticus, it was an expression of compassion and justice for those without. It allowed those who were following the law to have confidence that they were caring for the poor, and the foreigner, but like all things that begin with good intentions, it quickly was corrupted. So that um, the tradition became more important than people. Right? Following the law and the tradition of the law of rest on the Sabbath was more important than bringing healing and wholeness and, and, and full bellies to the people who were but Jesus' gospel message says, no, people are first. People are first, not laws. 
It is more important to, he asks, is it more important to maintain a day of rest than to bring healing and wholeness for those who are suffering? He troubles the water in this story. See, sometimes I think we hate our jobs and it's good. We hate our jobs because we see the traditions and the rules in the institution of the job that don't align with our gospel faith, that don't align with our identity as children of God. I'm going to tell you another story about that, and I'm sorry, I'm just telling you all kinds of Starbucks stories this morning. I'm going to tell you a story that troubled me in this gospel sense. When I was managing this store, I got an email from the HR department of Starbucks in Seattle. And they said, oh, Brittany, you have, you know, these five baristas that we don't have their social security cards for. And, you know, I talked about it being a busy store, so some of this was just oversight in the hiring process. Um, my predecessor maybe wasn't as type A of a personality as I was. Um, and so I was able to follow up and get the social security cards, copy them and send them, and, and things were fine. But with one of my favorite baristas, Carmen, I followed up with her and I said, hey, Carmen, um, I need your social security card. And she said, I don't have one. And I said, oh, well, you can apply and we can wait a couple of weeks and you can get a new one. She said, no, Brittany, I don't have one. I'm undocumented. That number I provided when I was hired a couple of years ago is fake. My parents came here when I was three years old. I don't, I don't have a social security card. I didn't know what to do because the gospel message says that we put people first and yet the rules and institution, the this, this silliness, the absurdity of our immigration policies said that she couldn't work. And so we both cried because we knew that if I wanted to keep my job, she couldn't keep hers. Hated my job in that moment. My job sucked in that moment. I wish I could say that I could find I could have found some sort of creative solution or way that she could continue working with us. I stalled as long as possible. I think I got five emails from HR before I finally was like, okay, Carmen, we have to make this your last week. I gave her recommendations. The gospel was stirred up in me, troubling the water of this unjust situation. It caused me to, to invest in JFON, Justice for Our Neighbors, which is this United Methodist organization that is helping people who are undocumented um, find, find paths to citizenship. The only solace I took in that is that I was stirred up, you know, because I saw the gospel way and I saw what was happening. And, and in some ways, that's good news, right? That I didn't just go along and say, oh, yeah, this is it. Too bad. These are the rules. This is the tradition. This is what we have to uphold. And the gospel messed me up. And so as you, I don't, I don't know what's going on in your workplace. I don't know. How many of you would say work is really hard? You hate your job sometimes, you love your job sometimes. That's how it is really, right? It's a mixed bag. 
As you go forth today and into your work life, know that the most important identity that you can bear is that you are a child of God. Pulled into this gospel, this radical, ridiculous, life-changing gospel. And that it's going to cause you to hate your job sometimes. And that's okay, because it's changing the world. So as you go forth today, know that that is how you flourish in this world. And that is what will bring joy in your work, even, even, and maybe especially when it sucks. Amen. Amen.